Hi, everyone. We are talking navigating relationships for early stage founders. And I read this article a few days ago on growth hackers that determined that the greatest indicator of startup success is resilience. They say you might feel that things are moving slowly in your company, and that's totally natural. You actually may make decisions that, in retrospect, may actually lead to some undesired consequences or perceived setbacks in the goals that you're trying to reach. If you are an entrepreneur that is building a brand new startup, you probably have trouble seeing any light at the end of the tunnel from time to time. So it's how far startup success is defined by how far an entrepreneur is actually willing to go and wait to see its startup succeed. Hi, everyone. My name is Hesse Jones, and I'm and welcome to Tech Uncensored. One often overlooked reality about startups is, is that launching and sustaining a startup is not as straightforward as any successful entrepreneur might lead you to believe. Even with all the current resources that are available through accelerators like Altitude or through um, investor funding, there are persistent challenges that, that always remain. And as a budding startup entrepreneur, you have to be prepared to navigate a lot of those obstacles and endure a lot of those difficulties. Many startups face challenges in their journey to actually scale and your ability to actually manage a lot of these issues as they surface, it is a sign of your character as you actually grow and develop um, as an entrepreneur and as a CEO. A lot of these challenges are mainly dependent on the relationships you cultivate and you create along the way. And what stories I find that never get told are the failures that transpire because of these relationships. They could be from opportunistic uh, clients who are unwilling to pay for their services rendered. Or you may find that um, once you're developing your team, there will be that one toxic co-founder or employee that you end up hiring. They're, they're, they could be partners um, or people in your network who are willing to drive enormous value uh, through their own um, networks to help you succeed, but they ultimately default on their promise. So for many founders, these failures are hard lessons they take to a new set of relationships that they encounter, whether or not they develop a new team, whether or not they find uh, the right uh, partners or vendors, and even when they select a VC. But even you personally as a CEO, it's determining your limitations and making the right decisions that you think are right for the company in that moment. So today I'm excited to welcome a few people who are going to talk about this topic with me. Devin Ramfell, who is the Sector Manager for Innovation and Technology at the City of Brampton's Economic Development Office and formerly CEO and co-founder of Clean Air, which was acquired last year, 2023. I'm also pleased to welcome uh, Jennifer Cameron, who is the co-founder and CEO of Inverse and formerly the founder of HyperWallet, which was acquired by Pay PayPal in 2018 for 400 million. Both have some really important stories as founders who have navigate, navigated relationships in their startup journeys. And they're going to provide some amazing insights from their own experience to help founders 
build resilience. So welcome, Devin and Jennifer. Thank you, Hennessy. Okay, so let's start from the beginning when, for both of you, and I'll start with Devin. Tell me about your early startup experience. Uh, you developed this amazing idea. You want to see it grow. What made you become an entrepreneur? Yeah, good question, Hetsy. Thank you. I think in the beginning, the first real entrepreneurial journey they had was after university, right? So it was actually a totally different company. It wasn't cleaner.ai. It was a company called Dram Inventions, where we invented a fuel nozzle that doesn't drip when you pump gas at the gas station. You pump gas right now, you take your nozzle out, it drips all over the floor. That was the first venture. Um, that was featured on CBC's Dragon's Den. That was a special energy innovation episode. Our technology actually came second place across the entire country for sustainable innovations. Unfortunately, second place didn't get anything um, from Dragon's Den. So we, um, but we got a lot of publicity. And within a month, um, our company was like, like hurled into this uh, media frenzy and people were emailing us from all over the world. We had, you know, six weeks to put a business together and a, and a website together and manage all of these inquiries, which was really cool. So that was the first venture. We took that pretty far. Um, we have a patent for it. Um, we have, we received an offer to purchase the technology a few years ago from one of the largest, um, OEMs, uh, in the market. So we didn't take the offer at the time. Um, we didn't feel the offer reflected the value, but that was, that was venture number one. And then we kind of morphed into venture number two, which was cleanair.ai, but really to answer your question, why it started off. It sounds kind of cliche to say, but it sounded, it, it started off almost like altruistic, like we wanted to help make the world a better place, right? With like, with, you know, stopping these unnecessary drops and saving gasoline. When you look at it on a grand scale, it was 300 million liters of fuel every year around the world that was being wasted. Um, but really at the crux of it, I feel like entrepreneurship is just, it's, it's internal and it's a drive to, to do something bigger and kind of leave a legacy, right? Something that'll last, you know, beyond you had to use a person, right? Like when, when I'm gone from this planet, what's remaining. And I think for me, that's, that's really what it is. It's just leaving something behind. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, that's what it's morphed. I don't think it's altruistic anymore by any means, but that's yeah. kind of how it started being fresh out of school and out of university. Thanks, Devin. Jennifer, what was your catalyst? I don't think my catalyst, like Devin said, there is an altruistic element to it. When I look at both HyperWallet and Inverse, I know that I have an underlying passion and belief in prosperity with HyperWallet making the ability for people to transact easier was a motivator and to, 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 to stimulate business growth was a motivator. And with Inverse, there's a desire to see um, sort of wealth unleashed. I mean, if people learn how to invest properly from an early age, that has tremendous consequences of how, you know, like a generation of people who grow up being far richer than anyone ever else has been. So there is an, an altruistic element, absolutely, for sure. And as far as a legacy, absolutely. I'm definitely motivated by successful outcomes and, you know, making value. But when it, my true motivator, the thing that really gets me going is I really like to be creative. I really like to see an idea come to fruition and just as importantly for people to enjoy it 
and like it. Sometimes I say, I'm an artist. This is when I'm being a little bit silly, but sometimes I say, I'm an artist and entrepreneurship is my canvas. <laughs> but I know it's a little bit silly, but that is sort of how I feel. Yeah. yeah. Um, very it's passionate about creation. You, you're the type of people that live, that draw outside of the boxes, right? You you like to think out of the box. You don't want to be constrained. Correct. Jen gave me a Jen gave me a thought as well. I think um, that those are really really good words, Jen. For what what that made me think about is um, one word, which is building, right? Like for me, it's what gets me excited is building something. Right. So in, you know, in Brampton, we're building this Brampton innovation district and in the tech startup, you're building a cool technology and, and a new market need for it. So I think really to add to what I said before, the crux of it for me is building something. So, so Devin, you started your company uh, with your friends and uh, this is a commitment that you all decided this is what we're going to do. We're going to be here for a while. So now your friends become your business partners and your co-founders. What was that transition like for you? It was it was a long transition. So we actually stayed in business for almost a decade, um, and give or take, you know. So some people came and some people left, and then they came back. So, but for the, more or less, it was, it was about a decade of a friendship and business together. The transition was was it it was easy in the beginning and it got harder as the business grew and got more serious. Um, and especially when you bring in other stakeholders, um, investors, customers, uh, it could be VCs, it could be the family and friends or angels, it, it doesn't matter. But when, when, um, you had others with expectations and, um, that's when I would say friction started could build with your friends, right? So that's when, that's when things really started to tra transition and started to change. Um, but in, in the beginning, when you're still developing your product, um, you, you know, you don't have many customers yet. You don't have many investors, you know, on your board of directors, it's just your group of friends and maybe some family members. It's, I don't want to say it's a fun games, but, but it's a lot, it, it's a lot smoother, right? But again, these external stakeholders, when they come in, um, things get a lot more serious and that's when friction would start to build. Okay. So we'll, we'll get into the external uh, stakeholders in, in a future question, but, um, Jen, I wanted to, to ask your experience. Um, you raised, you raised money in two economically difficult time periods. So in the early two thousands with HyperWallet and now in 2023, where we were seeing high interest rates, what was similar and what was different between the two and what happened? in the, the early odds that help you navigate what's happening today. Right. So I guess you could say that we had the misfortune of starting HyperWallet just as the dot-com bust was starting. I remember a VC saying to us when we were out fundraising, um, he said there was a cold wind blowing up from San Francisco. Um, and then, you know, it really did hit. So, I mean, that was, you know, that was like two decades ago, but it was so Devin, you probably don't have experience with it, but it was not good. And then when we started inverse, we were just starting to, to do the fundraising and then inflation hit and interest rates hit and the stock market was crashing. And it's, you know, if you're talking about 
like an investment research platform and in the investing environment's not so good, you know, people aren't as interested because they're losing money. So on the surface, two scenarios of bad timing. However, I don't hold to that notion of bad timing. It may look like bad timing on the surface, but time passes and then that bad timing turns out to be good timing. So it's a bit of a wait and see. Um, I will say that I haven't gotten serious about fundraising for inverse because of what's happened in the marketplace. Um, we went back to bootstrapping and now I'm very, very focused on revenue. Um, laying the ground for, for fundraising, but not being active at it at this stage. So I guess what's different is um, back in the Hebrola days, like we just kind of kept, we, you know, we knocked maybe for longer than we should have because it just was not the, the right time. And this time, at least I have the experience of going through a bad time to raise money, um, realizing that it can be um, negotiated and just keeping my focus more on the business rather than at knocking on doors. Okay. So um, let me ask, when you were raising with HyperWallet, um, to talk to me about the dynamics between you and the co-founders in your company. What was, what was that like? Like, were you considered um, best friends, I guess, because you started the company together, you had worked in previous companies together. What was your relationship like with your co-founders? Um, well, I very much admired my co-founder. I thought that she was brilliant. And I still do. Uh, I still admire her. I still think she's brilliant. Uh, I think um, we went through a big honeymoon phase at the beginning. There was so much enthusiasm about what we were doing. And we did raise some, um, some early financing, uh, roughly about half a million dollars before you know, things got too, too bad. Um, so there's all this energy that we're pouring into it and, and then sort of, you know, reality started to hit as money started to dwindle out of the bank account and, you know, fundraising was becoming increasingly different, difficult, and we didn't have proper business model at the time, like a way to make money. Okay. So, um, let me turn to Devin. Because as you grow your company and you realize that, okay, um, these are my business partners and my friends, but at the same time, now that we're grown up, we have to actually start thinking about how we protect the business and how do we pet protect our individual interests in the company? What does that look like uh, when, when you get to that stage? Yeah, it's, it takes a lot of foresight, right? And I guess... Being so fresh, like we were first-time entrepreneurs, we didn't really have companies before. Some of us had some professional experience in industry, but the startup startup game, as you know, is a totally different game. Um, going through it a second time, I would do things very, very differently. And I think Jen Jen had a really good point where um, times change, right? And as an entrepreneur, and when you're working, you know, with your co-founders and you're raising this money, it's it's important to recognize the time frame that you're in. And think to think about how that time frame could change in the future. For example, we raised money uh, with with a venture capital firm in 2021, right? And at the time, 
Um, you know, funding was fairly hot, interest rates were low. It was relatively easy to raise funds. Uh, just 12 months later, the tide starts to change, right? Like, as Jen said, like a cold wind was blowing from, from California. So um, the reins of the VC started to tighten up and we started to get squeezed a bit. And whereas in, in a regular time frame, a VC would have said, yeah, we'll, give, we'll extend your convertible note by you know, X amount of months. Uh, that didn't necessarily happen with us. It was really like, hey, well, you know, you gotta, you gotta step it up. And by the way, we're gonna do X and Y to your company and add these other um, conditions and in, uh, in, into your notes. So there's, a, I think, having the foresight of of knowing what what time frame you're in, how things could get worse or how things could get better, is really important for an entrepreneur to know. And so much of the time as entrepreneurs, we're just happy to raise money. Someone's gonna write us a check. Oh my God, like yeah, I'll t I'll take that. Um, but it, you don't, if you have a good product and a good business, someone will come and give you money. You don't have to take this check today. Right. And I think that part is really important. Um, for us it, with, with my co-founders and I, we, we, we got super excited, uh, with the first check and then we were even more excited with the second check. Right. And, um, and ultimately, um, you know, you, founders could end up digging themselves a hole, uh, for their startup company. Right. If, 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 if you get too excited and carried away with being in that moment with, with, with that, you know, that funding, does that answer? It, it does. It does. So I want to, I want to actually uh, talk about the relationship with your investors, because, um, you, you had made a point of saying that, um, you know, people go where the money is, but that shouldn't always be the case because when people when companies go into relationships with investors, like, sorry, a financial relationship with investors, it's really a marriage that's going to last the length of the time that, you know, the, the, where the money keeps flowing. So for, for you, maybe I'll start with, with, with Jennifer. Um, what was it like when you're, when you were raising, uh, when you're raising money? Um, what kind of investors did you go after in the beginning? So, um, I guess you're talking about Hyperwallet days when we were yes, raising them. Yeah. Or, or, and, and, have... and, yeah. And how did that change your criteria in, for inverse too? I think the, the environment was different than it is now. So I don't know if what I have to share is going to be entirely relevant for, um, for new investors, uh, for, excuse me, for new founders. Um, it was a lot less structured than it is now. Um, there weren't accelerators and incubators and all of that sort of thing. Um, and all of the sort of, wis well, wisdom, best practices, maybe it's the better word, that have grown up around um, theories around testing and failing fast and all these sorts of things um, that just wasn't there. Um, so, yeah. So I guess I, guess I just want to be clear about that. Um, I still, I, I guess my strategy at this stage going forward is to, um, I want to, when I start speaking with investors, I want to, I want to have as much power as I can. And I believe that will come from having a strong company and strength comes from having product market fit, which is just a, you know, 50 cent way of saying 
there are people willing to pay for what you have. So that's, I'm just, I'm, a, I'm just more focused on business rather than fundraising at this stage for now, for the moment. But, but you, you also talked about coming from a position of strength. So I'm going to uh, ask Devin this, is that, um, so when you look for investors, um, what, what would you look for differently than you did in the beginning? Like what, what are the things that resonated with you? Yeah. Yeah. For the company that we were building. So we were in the cleanair.ai was in the HVAC air filtration space. Uh, we had an, an HVAC filter that produced HEPA class air quality, but also reduced the energy consumption in the building. And we had sensors built into it. So you can know exactly when to change your filter and you can gather um, intelligence on, on the air quality, the air quality in the building. Um, so looking for an investor, what was important for us was someone that was connected in that space. It wasn't, we weren't just looking for and just for money, um, you know, we, we were looking for someone that could make those strategic connections with customers. So the industry was property technology, our prop tech for short, uh, we were looking for prop tech specific VCs. Um, and we found some, right. We found some, we, we, we started off the journey, um, by joining a prop tech accelerator and this accelerator actually put some funds into the company. Uh, so that was really helpful. And through that prop tech accelerator, we actually, and that was like our first round and then through this PropTech Accelerator, we actually met a more sort of like a larger um, PropTech VC who ended up putting some funds in the round. Uh, so we were, when we were identifying potential funders, I think we did a fairly, a fairly good job. Like we were very intentional. Um, we did have some funding um, that was offered to us from angels, but we again wanted to be very careful of like our cap table. We're trying to keep it as clean as possible. Um, so we didn't end up going funding from, uh, from, from the angels, we stuck with the VCs, but you also need the other part of this is you get to be careful, um, the strings that come with the fund, right? We were offered funding from a few other sources and some of those other sources, um, we didn't want to, we didn't want to go and, and attach yourself to those strings, right? You know, one of them would have made us relocate uh, our company entirely, um, which, you know, wasn't, uh, wasn't really plausible for us. And that's just an example of some of the strings that come with the money. Is there like from from both your perspectives, um, knowing what you lived through, especially with investor relationships, uh, from your perspective, was is there an inordinate amount of power imbalance when it comes to this? Like Jen, did you experience a power imbalance when when you um, when you eventually got funding from the investor side, like how much the, the kind of pressure that they would put on you as a company and a founder? Uh, well, I mean, as it turns out, that first money that we raised with Piper Wallet, um, no, it, it wasn't too onerous or anything like that. Um, it was just the person who happened to invest. He was uh, um, just, I guess, a bit of a, different sort of guy and no it wasn't it wasn't like your typical VC I mean he was a professional investor but it was just different it was just different time right than it is now why is that why like maybe maybe Devin you can you can answer that like it, it just seems to be maybe the uh the early uh 2000s were a different time when technology was just was starting to peak and then everything was like oh my god I gotta get into the all this new stuff and now like there is i think 
because there there's a reticence in in what's happening in the market that investors too um, have put more pressure on founders to meet specific milestones and to the point that they're they're hovering right. I mean, whoa, Devin, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think um, it, for me, it really depends on the, the the type of the investor and the type of the VC, right? So I've seen. The smaller the investor, I, I found that you have more and more pressure, right? If you have a much bigger institutional investor, you have a little bit more flexibility. Um, and the founders have typically like a little bit more say in the company, right? Uh, the smaller VCs, maybe they're not as well known. Uh, they tend to exercise their strength and the power over, over the founders and try to, a lot of them, it's, 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 it's kind of weird because they, some of them get the get the inclination that they can run the company better than the founders but we're seeing in the market that that's not actually the case like a lot of these vcs that take over a tech company and try to run it they end up running it downwards instead of upwards right um so it's and I, i'm seeing that's more common with the smaller lesser known vcs rather than the bigger vcs if uh, if i could give advice to a startup i would say try to go to a, a bigger more well-known vc and raise funds there um, I think that would be a better experience in a smaller VC. And that's just my personal. Okay. So let me, let me pivot a little bit and, and talk about um, a different type of relationship. So these are partners and suppliers. And so a lot of startups, um, they begin by not, by trying to do everything themselves, right? So they may not necessarily seek out uh, potential partners or vendors early at the early stages um, where they could actually get some competitive advantage. So um, I'll ask Jennifer this, because first of all, um, in either through HyperWallet or through Inverse, do you rely on certain partnerships or, or suppliers? And if, if uh, based on those two experiences, what are the things that you, that you look for? in defining a good partner or vendor relationship? Uh, it's definitely more relevant to talk about suppliers with respect to Inverse. Um, so when we were creating Inverse, or sort we are, it's still active creation, but uh, when we were first, when the idea was first there, we needed data suppliers, but we weren't sure what our business model was going to be. And there was a bit of disconnect between how the supplier would price out their their data versus how we were going to be consuming it and then you know earning money from it down the road so but we needed that data in order to start building um and there are other tools and that sort of thing so um that was tricky um that was a tricky negotiation to try and create a contract that was flexible enough to support, you know, where we thought we were going to go. But like I said, it was just where we think we're going to go. So contract's okay. It's tolerable. Knowing what I know now, I would probably want to tweak it. Fortunately, they are receptive and good partners. And we have been able to make some changes to, like we reinterpreted what a customer was. Um, which was, you know, very good in my favor. It helped us having to start paying additional money. So, so that was great. 
I guess what I would say that the piece of advice I would give to um, nascent entrepreneurs is to really read those contracts carefully. It's so difficult because they can be so dry and they, they just, but if you can try and put yourself into different frames of mind um, under different scenarios, you may, it may be, it may help to enlighten what you're signing on to. Okay. And then give you some latitude to negotiate um, things that would be more in your favor. So, but I think, yeah, go ahead, Jen. I think working with contracts and that sort of thing, I definitely think it's something you get better at. You, you need to have experience doing it mm -hmm. um, and practice doing it. I think so. The other thing about contracts is that I guess when you're, when like very, very early on, people don't put as much importance in contracts because they think that, hey, uh, my friend's doing something over here, let's collaborate. And then they fail to even put a good, contract together to to make each other accountable for the things that they said that they would do, right? So I'm going to turn to to Devin because uh, like the, choosing the right partner is going to be important, especially in the beginning when, let's say, um, you need to establish a certain level of trust, especially when you're bootstrapping and you don't, you can't necessarily afford to pay the supplier for the things that they that they um, are are providing you. So, tell me what, like, what these negotiations or agreements look like to to make sure that there's some mutually beneficial thing that happens between the, the both of you without one actually having a, a a stronger upper hand than the other. Yes. Yeah. No. That's a good question. I would almost come back a little bit to what Jen was saying earlier and kind of watching how the winds are blowing, right? And a lot of the time. When a startup signs a contract with someone, they're very excited about it, right? And it's it's in a happy time and, you know, hey, we have a new partner on board. Oh, we got our first supplier locked in. There's a lot of excitement and um, and startups can get caught in that, right? And not realizing that there's going to be dozens of contracts down the road and more suppliers, right, that, that you can secure. Um, but I think it's important to say, you know, like from like different viewpoints, like what Jen said, how can this go south? How can this relationship go south? How can this partnership go south? How can this supplier go south, right? And one of the key things that we learn is, especially specifically to suppliers, multiple sources of supply always, right? Never rely on a single source of supply. So we were a hardware company and we had to visit by these physical filters that we were selling to customers. And, and it would have de-risked our company greatly had we had a second source of supply, right? Um, but so exclusivity is one thing to look for in these contracts, payment terms, right? Uh, net 30, net 60, net 90. Ideally from a startup perspective, you want to push out your payment term as long as you can. The, the supplier would want to squeeze it down as much as you can, right? So working with that supplier to find that balance, keep an eye out for how the contract could be changed, right? You don't want someone to make a unilateral change. These change, like if there's a suggested change to the contract, you'd want it to be a mutual change. Um, so those are a few of the things I've seen with supplier relationships, but coming back to partnerships in general, you guys, can you repeat that part of the question, Hensi, the partnership part? Yeah. Okay. So what did I say here? So what would it, what would the negotiation or agreement look like so that there is equal benefit to both of you without one having the upper hand? Yeah. Yeah. I would, um, I think there's creative ways to do this with partnerships. 
right? Um, one thing I would advise against is going in, going, rushing into like any sort of joint venture or a 50-50 partnership. Um, 50-50 partnerships, um, they, they, there's a lot of challenges with them. A lot of the time they don't work out as well. Um, and essentially what happens with these 50-50 partnerships is you can end up in a deadlock, right? Between shareholders, your board of directors, all of that. So, um, avoid 50-50s and try to find other ways that you can make that partnership equal. Like even you don't necessarily have to give equity for a partnership, but if you're in that situation where, you know, you found, um, you found a strategic partner that's willing to put some money in and, or, or give you X for a certain piece of equity. Don't give a ton of your company away. Try, try to hold as much as you can and try to find another way. You know, think from your partner, this potential partner shoes, what do they want, right? What's in it for me with them, right? And, um, and try to see if you can give them something else, um, other than equity or, or control here. Um, keep your company, the operations, the board as much internally as you can and then try not to give too much of that out. Okay. Okay. Perfect. So let's go to the last topic where we're going to talk to you talk about you as the CEOs and, and what makes you tick. So Jennifer, um, as a two-time founder, what do you think has kept you going despite the hurdles that you've experienced? And what do you think, what do you see in yourself that may not have been evident at the time of, let's say your first company? So what keeps me going? Um, I guess a desire to see my vision manifest, to put it simply. And what do I see in myself that I maybe didn't have before? Um, well, I was pretty wet around the ears when um, I co-founded HyperWallet. So... You know, I've had a lot of experience to that. Um, one of the things that I heard back in the day was no credibility. So I did a lot of work to close that credibility gap again. Like nobody's going to say that to me again. Um, and then there's a lot of soft skills. I mean, business is about people, improving your skills around empathetic listening trying to find win-win scenarios. I just, I, there's a lot, I would say. I want to I've added out. since over the 20 years. So this is something that um, you said. You said being a leader is tough. You have to give courage when you feel none. I don't find any of that easy. You have to be curious and you have to have faith in yourself. But I do know I'm improving as a leader. I know I'm better than I was when I started HyperWallet. I can evaluate my decisions objectively. So what do you think? How you changed as a leader over time? That quote, that's still true from where I sit right now. It is tough to be a leader. You do have to show, you do have to encourage other people. You have to be curious, asking those questions. It's really a skill, an art, rather than just, you know, maybe jumping to a conclusion. Is it a... Um, and you have to have faith. 
Now, would you say that you did anything differently? And and back then, I don't even know if there was a thing called mental health back in the aught. But now, it like it seems to be a way for a lot of founders to actually find strength if they have the time to meditate, if they have time to take care of themselves, like their mental health or their physical health. Is that is that something that has changed with you as well? I, you know, in a way, I think well, life has even gotten more difficult than it was. I mean, now I have a family. I, I have any, any, you know, a parent who's dying. Um, it's really gotten more difficult, and the demands on my mental health have grown exponentially. Um. So, yeah, I meditate. I do a lot of. Um, a lot of internal work. I really try to keep my, I find if I focus on what I don't want, it's not helpful at all. I have to keep, you know, quote unquote, eyes on the prize, the vision of where I want it to get to and how that's going to feel. So you have to, yeah, you have to be intentional about your emotional state. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. So, Devin, let's turn into to turn to you about the topic of asking for help because you 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 are all for it. I know I know you you have relied on mentors to help you while you were um, dealing with some some issues with with your company. Tell me about the importance of mentorship and and seeking advice and how what that has meant to you during that time. Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I think. You know, as the co-founder CEO of a company, it's a, especially in the CEO role, like it's very lonely at the top, right? There's not a lot of people that you can turn to, especially around you, like in your executive circle, in your co-founding circle, in your director circle, you can't necessarily turn and speak to these people openly about, about some of the issues that either the company's having or even you're having personally. So very lonely at the top as the CEO, um, but having external advisors, um, was one of the most powerful things. Um, for for us at Clean Air and all through my entrepreneurial journey, I I, I had an EIR, multiple EIRs. Like one at, at Altitude Accelerator, I had one all the way in Guelph. I had another one, and that was a professor at at Rotman where I did my MBA. And I would routinely, especially as you know, we're going through the acquisition phases, as we're raising funds, as we're negotiating with the suppliers and building this partner relationship, I would be on on the phone with these advisors. And really just using these advisors as sounding boards, right? That's all it really is. It's you're, you're asking some questions and you're getting some feedback. And as the CEO, it's your job to take that feedback and just you make the decision on it, whether you want to take it or not take it or take action on it or do the total opposite. It's entirely up to you. But as, as long as you're gathering as many of these qualified opinions as you can, um, and then and find that with, you're essentially collecting this data and that allows you to navigate a little bit better as, as the CEO. Um, so advisors, very critical, uh, multiple advisors, very critical because there's the times when my advisors were saying the total opposite, right? And that would help me calibrate in terms of the next steps. Uh, so yeah, I would highly recommend having multiple diverse advisors um, to, for, for anybody growing a company. Okay. So I have one more question to, to ask uh, both of you um, as you look back and you, let's say, reconcile your vision um, of entrepreneurship um, based on what's real and based on what you envision. 
What was the most telling lesson uh, for you, Jennifer? Like regrets, anything that you would do differently? What do you think? I think having faith is really important. Um, because when it's dark and bleak, which it certainly will be from time to time, you have to have faith. And I think that goes, circles back to what you started this podcast with, um, resilience and how much you're going to hang on to make your vision a reality. Because it's not about it's not about the honeymoon stage it's not about you know when things are great the 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 when the rubber hits the road is when things are really dark and that's what you have to get through thank you that's powerful uh devin what do you think yeah regrets i don't i don't have any regrets i would do it all over again if i could the amount of learning that came out of it was unbelievable right it was just like the the things that we were put through as a company the challenges we faced i can't put a value on that education that it that that it taught me would i do things differently a hundred percent but that doesn't mean i regret it right just looking back there's a million mistakes that we made but that's that's again how we learn right that's how we grow so I wouldn't go back and change anything. It is, it is what it is. But for the next time, I know way, way better. I won't make the same mistakes twice, right? So um, definitely happy, happy with the experience and going through it and, and no regrets. Thank you. So I think that's going to be our last word. And, and that's all we have time for today. And I thank both uh, Jennifer and Devin for lending their wisdom to this important topic and sharing your journeys um, about a topic that not many people talk about. So thank you again for coming. If you in our audience have any topics that you do want us to cover, please drop us a line at communications at altitudeaccelerated.ca. In the meantime, have fun and stay safe. Tech and Censored, an Altitude Accelerator podcast, does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and distributed by Bluemax. For more Tech and Censored content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemax.io to join us on Discord.